Starting a new sermon series today, and we're going to be looking at the life of the Apostle Paul over the next um, few weeks. Really, we're looking at how he um, was involved in mission, how he went around spreading the good news. And it's really that song that we've just sung. We're singing the bit about how the Spirit sparked the flame and looking about how we too are called to be sharers of the good news. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, I've got two readings this morning. The first one is from Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 21. That's on page 1040 if you've got a church Bible. And then the second reading is from Galatians 1 verses 11 to 16. And that's on page 1103. So from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a man named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who has raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And then reading from Galatians. This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 16. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Few have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then it goes on. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. Let's just pray, shall we, before we look at these scriptures together. Lord, we're amazed at the way you impacted Saul's life. We're amazed at the way that even today you're calling men and women to follow you. So, Lord, as we unpack these passages of Scripture, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you encourage and challenge, we pray, for Jesus' sake? Amen. Amen. If you want to keep the Acts passage open, that's the one we'll be looking at the most closely this morning. Gary Lineker, he got in trouble um, a few weeks back, I think, or just a while back, for making jokes about bald people. And um, he made some references to to his colleagues, you'll you'll see it in a minute, um, who, like me, are challenged with an absence of hair. But the interesting thing was, he got complaints written to the BBC. People said he should be sacked for making these jokes. Just watch, this was the week after when he appeared on Match for the Day. It's amazing what you can get away with when you don't actually say the word, isn't it? But it's interesting how people go against things, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed in our culture today, um, definitely in our political scene. Over the summer, I was wondering whether I'd come back for sabbatical and outlasted a prime minister while I was actually on sabbatical. That hasn't been the case just yet. But we look at our political scene in our country and we see division, don't we? We see people disagreeing with each other. I remember hearing Theresa May, just before she resigned, saying to Parliament, you keep telling me what you're against, but you won't tell me what you're for. What are you actually for? What will you rally around? I wonder if we ask that questions of ourselves today. What are we actually for? What are we going to stand up for? What are we going to be part of? You see, it's very easy to be against things, isn't it? It's very easy to say, I'm against this, I'm against bald jokes, I'm against the EU, I'm against Brexit, whatever it is. It's much harder to nail our colours to the mast and say, I'm for this. This is what matters. This is what I will live. And even if I need to, this is what I'll die for. If we look at our society today, a lot of sort of people commentating are saying there are quite a lot of similarities between Europe now and Europe in the middle of the 1700s. If you know anything of history, I was a bit of a sort of history geek, so I'm quite into history. And um, there were all these revolutionary forces going around in the, in the late sort of 1700s. And it led to a violent revolution in France in 1789. But in this country, things were quite different. I'm just going to actually read a little bit of what a historian says about England in the middle of the 1700s. They say, at the beginning of the 18th century, England was a moral quagmire and a spiritual cesspool. It's a good way to start, isn't it? 
Thomas Carlyle described the country's condition as stomach well and alive, but soul extinct. And he goes on to say that when you went round the churches, and, and there was a man who went round all the major churches in London, he said you couldn't tell that they were Christian. He said you couldn't tell whether they were preaching Jesus, or philosophy, or Islam, or Confucianism. He said there was just nothing of the church that spoke of Jesus Christ. And morally, the country was in an absolute mess. Drunkenness was just seen on the streets. There's this picture, you may have seen it. Um, Is it Hogarth called Gin Lane, with a mother holding a baby that's falling to its death because she is so drunk? And it was just a terrible place. 97% of infants in workhouses died before the age of one. 97%. It was in an absolutely terrible state. But into this environment, into this environment, people started to seek God. People like George Whitfield, like John and Charles Wesley, they went around preaching. And the historian goes on to say that actually the whole of English society was turned around. Because people got on their knees, realized who Jesus was, and said, God has a better plan for us than the one that is currently on offer. God has a different narrative than the one that we're seeing in the country tomorrow. You know, perhaps it's just me, but as I look at the national sort of news and the narrative that's going on, I have never witnessed such division and anger bubbling up in our society. Will we be a church who sits on the sidelines and just talks against it? Or will we change the narrative and say, God has a better way? God has spoken hope through Jesus Christ. There is something totally different on offer. You know, the Bible is clear, isn't it? Everybody needs Jesus. Everybody. We all need a saviour. We're faced with a lost present and a lost eternity without him. A church of pleasant nominalism and middle-class respectability doesn't have the power to offer the hope that people need today. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be having a look at Paul. What did Paul do? How did he share the gospel? What happened to him as a result of sharing the gospel? And we find at times it is really difficult what happens to Paul. But then we'll see the results. People come to faith. People who've been in the kingdom of darkness join the kingdom of light. People find that they are forgiven. People find that actually there is a different way. There's God's way of living and God's way of being. But you know, we can't really talk about Paul without looking at how it all began. We can't really talk about anything to do with Paul without first going to the Damascus Road and saying, how did he encounter Jesus? We have to even take a step back from that and say, well, who was Paul, Saul, at this point? Who was Saul? What was this man? Who was he who was walking down the Damascus Road? Well, there's a few things we can say about him. First thing, and this is really important, he was Jewish. He was a very committed Jew. That's why that Galatians reading is so interesting, because it tells us he was passionate about following in the traditions of his fathers. He would do anything, literally anything, to keep his Jewish faith pure. If you read the the book of Acts, in the previous chapters, you'll see Paul is there at the martyr of Stephen. And he says that is a good thing. He will see people eradicated, who were followers of Jesus at this point, to see his Judaism stay pure. He thought Jesus was a hoax, a fake, not the Son of God, and if he could do anything to get rid of his followers, that would be a good thing. He's also a Roman citizen. That means he would be a person who'd be able to travel around easily. It also meant he could appeal to the emperor, which we find later in the book of Acts becomes quite a thing. And it means that he's a person of some sort of standing in the community. He's well-educated. 
it says um, further on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22, that he learned about his Jewish faith from Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a Jewish teacher of the day, and he probably spent up to about 10 years with him, learning about the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever just opened, like, say, the book of Romans and thought, you know, the bloke who wrote this is quite clever. I don't know if you've ever thought that. But Paul was a genius. You know, intellectually, he was a bit of a bright spark. You know, if today you are sat here and you are an A-star student, don't think God won't use your intellect. You know, this is what happened to Paul. If you give it to God, God will use it. He's zealous, passionate. He's this man who is passionate. We find out he's actually passionately wrong at the beginning of the chapter. But he is passionate for doing what he thinks God wants him to do. He's also, at this point, quite young. We don't know for certain, but he's somewhere between the ages of about 27 to 29. So today, that would be in the young man category, wouldn't it? It's that sort of age bracket. He's unimpressive physically. We can sort of find this out from um, the epistles, but also there was somebody writing about Paul, probably about 70 years after he, he died. Now, we don't know whether this is true, but it's worth a read anyway. This is what this writer says about Paul. It says, he's a man of middling size, and his hair was scanty. Don't let Gallery Lineker anywhere near him. His legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. He had large eyes, and his eyebrows met in the middle, and his nose was somewhat long. Do you ever want to feel good about yourself? Read that quote and keep reading it. (laughs) Now, we don't know whether that is true. But what we find in the epistles is that he's not a physically impressive person. He's not a character who you would sit and think, wow, what an impressive orator, what an impressive kind of character. He's just an ordinary, well, probably not ordinary by that description, but he's just a bloke, just a random bloke sort of physically. And then he's walking to Damascus. This passionate, well-educated Jew who thinks he knows what he should be doing is walking to Damascus. And what happens? He encounters Jesus. Perhaps not in the way most of us will encounter Jesus. Most of us don't have what happens here. This is what theologians would call a theophany, a God experience, an experience of the the physicality of God, the bright light, the voice. But Saul would have known what was happening, because this has echoes back to the Old Testament. If you go back to Exodus, at the time when Moses is on Mount Sinai, or going to the book of Isaiah, you'll find that sometimes God speaks to people in this kind of way. It happens in the New Testament. Think about Jesus' baptism or the transfiguration. You get the bright light. You get the voice from heaven, the experience, the encounter with God in this way. This is what happens to Saul. And Saul does the only sensible thing you can do. Ask, who is this? Who are you, Lord? It's a question we all need to ask, isn't it, of Jesus? Who are you? What does it mean when we hear the answer? Who are you, Lord? The answer comes, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Seven words. Seven words that will totally change Paul, Saul as he is at this point, from this moment on. At this point, Saul's world will get turned upside down. You see, Saul had been zealous, but he'd been zealously wrong. He'd been passionate, but he'd been passionately wrong. And now he finds out that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And everything will now change. What we see here is just this beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. You know, God breaking into human experience, calling people. But then Paul, Saul, 
still having to respond out of his free will to what God would say. And the account continues. He's told to get up. The men with him, they hear the voice, but they don't don't see what's going on. Saul gets up. He finds he's blinded. And then Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us he fasts. But Luke doesn't tell us a lot more. So I love the way Luke writes, because what he does is he leaves tantalizing things open to us. So we think, what what was Saul doing at this point? There's a commentator called Howard Marshall who writes on this and says, actually, the probability is is that Saul, at this point, is cut to the heart and is repenting. Fasting often goes with repentance in the Old Testament. You can see that in the book of Nehemiah. And you can just imagine Saul broken, absolutely broken, because he's been persecuting the one who is the hope of Israel. He's been persecuting God's Messiah. You know, repentance isn't a popular word, generally. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, but if I said, put your hands up if you like admitting you're wrong, I can't imagine many of us would be there, oh yeah, I love that, I love it when I'm wrong. It teaches me humility. We don't love it, do we? We like to be right. We like to think we're right. We like to think that our wisdom is sufficient to make us right most of the time. But when suddenly we find out we're wrong, then actually that causes problems for us. But no relationship with Jesus can start with us thinking we're right. No relationship with God can start with us thinking we've got all the answers. Repentance is about us saying, look, I'm I'm so sorry, Lord, that I've tried to do things my way. I've not gone your way. But that's only half of the picture of repentance. You see, repentance is not just that, but it's a returning to Jesus. You know, if Paul had just sat there really contrite and said, I'm really sorry, but not turned to Jesus... We'd have just had some kind of, I don't know what would have happened. But he turns to Jesus and then gives his life over to serving him in his ways. Saying, I don't want to do life my way, but I want to do it your way. Ahead of Paul, ahead of Saul, sorry, I'll get these tangled up at this point. Ahead of Saul in Damascus is a man named Ananias. He's been warned by God in a dream to expect Saul arriving. He didn't seem too happy about it. I don't know if you noticed that during the reading. I don't think I would have been either. But then he does what God says, and Saul arrives at Ananias' house. By verse 17, we found him being physically restored, being infilled by the Holy Spirit. He's baptized, and he breaks his fast. At once, and I think this is really key here, at once he starts sharing the good news. Just think for a moment. Imagine you come to church next week, and there is a 27-year-old preaching who became a Christian four days ago. What would we be thinking of that? We'd be thinking, really? Surely this person needs to go on a 16-week course to learn how to share their life with Jesus. Surely before you preach, you need to go and study theology. Surely before you do all this stuff. Now, obviously, Paul had his Jewish background, and all that is already there. But the call of every Christian, and it's every Christian, once we know Jesus, is to share him doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for three days or 70 years. It doesn't matter whether you're 15 or 95. The call is the same. Share Jesus. Be part of what Jesus is doing. And so we get to the end of chapter 9. And we see Paul, and we see him preaching, and we see people astonished that Paul is preaching. Well, I would be. I don't know about you, but if if you'd heard that this man was going to come and kill you and then find he's there preaching, you'd be there, something has happened. What I want to do 
really this morning is to pick up on the three characters in the story. And I want us to think, which of these characters represent us? Now, you're probably thinking three. I've only noticed two characters in this story. Or three, if you count Jesus. But I want to think about Saul. I want to think about the men who were with him. And then lastly, to think about Ananias. Just think about Saul for a moment for a moment, and see whether we feel that he is like us in some way. Saul is a man who will encounter Christ. He's a man who will become totally transformed and changed by the gospel. As we read through the epistles, we find that actually knowing Jesus totally transforms his thinking, it transforms what he does, it transforms the way he lives. And right at the center of this, as we read Saul and we read Paul later on, is that the cross is at the center of everything. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the heart of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What Paul would find out, what Paul would learn is that Christ died to set us free from sin and death. Christ died to free us from our past and from our future as well. Christ died so that we would have that eternal hope. And Christ is still calling each of us by name to follow him. You might not have this kind of experience on the way home. God does sometimes do that, but it doesn't happen a lot. But Jesus is still calling each of us by name. And I just wonder if you're here today, and perhaps you're here and actually you have never said yes to Jesus in the first place. You've sort of skirted around, but you've never made that conscious decision to say, yes, I want to start that journey. If that is you today, can I commend this Jesus who is risen to you? And just say, look at him again. Look at what your answer would be to the who are you, Lord, question. And just think about following Jesus. But perhaps you've been following Jesus for years, but actually you need to come back and answer that question again. And just simply say to Jesus, I'm here. I will follow. I will follow after you. I will come after you. I will do the things that you do. I will live and be the kind of person that you have called me to be. This world needs hope, doesn't it? This world needs a changed narrative. Will we be bringers of that changed story because of what Jesus has done in our lives through his cross, through his resurrection? Second people, I couldn't think of anything original to call them, so I've just called them random men. These are the people who are with Saul on the road. And um, Luke doesn't tell us a lot about them. I don't know if you've ever been to like an event or something and you feel like an outsider. Have you ever had that experience? I've probably talked about this before, but I used to, um, when I worked as a musician, used to play the piano for wedding receptions and people's parties. Used to do quite a lot of it. And the main reason was it was dead easy money because you got quite well paid. You'd go, you'd sit, You'd have a list of 20 or 30 songs and you'd sit and play them, go home and get paid. But actually, there was a problem attached to it. Is that I would be at people's family parties not knowing anybody. Seeing everybody else celebrating and me sat there playing lift music in the corner. And actually, after a while, it became quite soul-destroying because you think, is this really what I want to be doing with my time? Is this really worthwhile? And so I got a bit fed up with it. Put my prices up so high that nobody booked me again. (laughs) That was my way out. But being a bystander is not great, is it? 
looking in on something that seems to be happening to everybody else, but not us, is not the best place to be. These men, Luke doesn't tell us hardly anything, apart from that they hear the voice and they're sort of dumbstruck with what's going on. We don't get to find out whether they become Christians. We don't get to find out who they are. Essentially, in the narrative of Luke, they're they're just the bystanders. They're here watching what is going on. I don't know if you ever feel, as a Christian, that you're a bit of a bystander when watching other people who are Christians. Perhaps you're here today and you, you hear some people share testimony. You think, why does it never happen to me like that? Why does Jesus never seem to change me in the way he changes other people? Why do other people pray for things and see answered prayer, and yet I'm just stuck year after year going through the same monotony? Or perhaps you're there and somebody's sharing about their their sort of quiet times, and it sounds like, you know, they're really close with Jesus, and yet Jesus to you just seems distant, remote. Perhaps you, you know him, but actually there isn't that sort of closeness and that intimacy with him. And we can find ourselves feeling like the bystander. You know, it's all going on here. Other people are having these amazing walks with God, and yet we're sort of stood at the side, not quite sure what to do. Towards the end of my sabbatical, um, I went on a retreat, a personal retreat, so it was literally just me on my own, going up to a retreat place in Northumberland, and um, was there for four days. And it was it was really great sort of time. I will share a bit more about the actual time at some point. Um, but on this retreat, we had a retreat guide, And this is somebody you met with for about an hour, hour and a half in the morning. And he would chat through, he would suggest scriptures to read and perhaps things to pray for. On the first day, he came and we we just had a chat. He said, tell me a bit about yourself. He said, I don't know you at all. You know, what do you do? Where do you live? This kind of thing. Where do you come from? It's like a game show host sort of intro. And I said, well, I'm a minister of Lynn Baptist Church, currently on sabbatical. Um, I live in a house that's behind the church. Um... I've worked in churches for the last 14 years, is it, something like that, doing various things. Um, my mum and dad were involved in church leadership. Claire, my wife, leads the, one of the leaders of the worship teams at church. Claire's dad's a minister. You know, we've got people. And I just went on sharing about life. And he, he looked at me and said, you've got an awful lot of church in your life. And then he went on and said, I fear for you. He said, I fear that church may push God out. You know, I said, we don't like it when somebody tells us something. I could feel myself bristling. I could feel, I was hoping my face didn't display what was going on inside. I don't think it did. I think I got away with it. But I could feel that sort of, how dare you? You know, I have given myself, I have obeyed what I feel is God's call in terms of serving the church. But you know what? The more I thought about that, he was absolutely spot on. It is very easy to substitute Real relationship with Jesus, real relationship with God for churchification. Is that a word? Can I make it a word? Where we start to get the two things more up. You know, Jesus never said, make the church Lord of your life. He said, make me Lord of your life. We proclaim Jesus is Lord. Now, church is fantastic. You know, we're called to meet together. We're called to not give up meeting together. We're called to do life together as disciples with one another. All those one anothering things, you can't do on your own. We need the church family, obviously. But it really cut me. Churchification. I wonder today whether you are becoming a bystander with Jesus because of churchification. Whether actually church is sapping relationship with Jesus. So coming back, 
I decided, you know, I've got to do something about this. I've got to put things in my life that mean that actually my relationship with Jesus is the first thing. Not the other things. You know, as we look at church, it doesn't matter how good our PA system is. It is not going to change the world for the gospel. It doesn't matter how good our preaching, our teaching, our services, all of these things, important though they are, if we are not sold out for Jesus and walking with him, actually we're banging the wrong drum, aren't we? We're doing the wrong thing. One thing I was sharing at at Leaders on Monday night was that actually, uh, a number of months back, I remember sharing at a church meeting saying, wouldn't it be great if as our building is renovated, as our building is done up, if this became a a seven-day-a-week house of prayer? If actually the center of what we did wasn't this is a a seven-day-a-week hive of activity, yes, let's be that as well, but let's be a place of prayer. So we're going to be putting that into practice. So watch this space. Can't give you any more details. Me and Louise are meeting on Tuesday night try and work out what that means practically. But let's put God at the center. If you today are feeling like a bystander in your relationship with Jesus, as we take communion, can I encourage you, recommit to that connection, that deep love of Christ. Walk with him. Carve the time out to spend time with him. Third person. Thankfully, we know this person's name. Ananias. I think he's really the concerned disciple. He has a question, and it's basically to the Lord, are you sure? I think this is a question as a church family, that if we do what God wants us to do, if we're prepared to step out with pioneering ministries and welcome people into our building who perhaps we're not welcoming at the moment, we will find ourselves asking the Ananias question. Lord, are you sure you want these people to come to know you? Lord, are you sure that you want me to talk to that person? Lord, are you sure that that group should be allowed in the building? They might stain the new carpet. Sounds silly when we say it like that, but actually we will find ourselves asking the Ananias questions. Lord, are you sure? Do we want to be the Ananias of verse 13 or the Ananias of verse 17? Who simply says, okay, Lord, You probably know rather more than I do. Let's go with it. Let's have Saul round. Comes round, prays for him, he's baptized, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and within days he's out preaching. And the world will never be the same again because of Paul's ministry. Are we going to be Ananiases like that, who just say, Lord, this is what you're calling me to do? I don't know if any of those people or groups of people resonate with you this morning. I don't know if you're a soul and you need to just take the plunge and say, yes, Jesus, I will follow after you. And come to that knowledge of who Jesus is, of the cross and his resurrection, all that he has done on your behalf. I don't know if you're feeling like a random person this morning, a bystander. If that's you, as we come to communion, can I just encourage you again, just recommit your life to God. Or perhaps you do feel like an Ananias. Somebody who's saying, are you sure? God's calling you to something, and at the moment, perhaps you, you, you're turning your back on it. Are you sure, Lord? Just going to leave just a few moments of silence, just as musicians come back up. Perhaps you need to just do business with God in your own heart. I don't know what that is, but perhaps God is calling you in some way just to reflect on those three characters. So let's just spend just a couple of minutes in silence, and then the musicians will lead us ahead of communion.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Just pray that you will give us open hearts. Pray that as if we've looked, as we've looked at something of this account of Saul's conversion, that if any of this applies to us, Lord, that you'll give us the courage to step out into it. Holy Spirit, would you minister amongst us? Lord, would you be our vision? Would you be at the center of our shared life together?